As I thought and prayed about how to introduce Romans 9, I came upon a passage of Scripture that I think speaks both to our purpose in this study and to our posture as we approach this chapter. It comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where the teacher gives us this advice. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. There are two types of people who approach God. There are those who come near to listen, and there are those who come near to speak. The former are the wise. The latter are fools. The fool comes before God running his mouth and dreaming his dreams, we find in verses 3 and 7. He makes rash vows before God, verses 4 to 6. He bargains with God to do what he wants because he imagines that he's got everything figured out. He and not God knows what is best. Indeed, he thinks that things would go better if God would just step aside and let him run things for a while. This is what the teacher calls the sacrifice of fools. Rash words before God spoken in ignorance is the sacrifice of fools. Indeed, the teacher calls it evil. The wise man, on the other hand, guards his steps and shuts his mouth when he comes before God. He comes to listen, not to talk. Why? The answer is given at the end of verse 2. It's because God is in heaven and we are on earth. Therefore, we should let our words be few. The teacher concludes in verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. It's that word that occurs throughout Ecclesiastes. It means emptiness, just vapor. Vanity. Our dreams dreamed in ignorance, our words that grow many in ignorance, spoken before God, they're empty, they're vanity. Rather, God is the one you must fear. As I said, I think this passage lays out both our purpose and our posture as we prepare to tackle Romans 9. We are coming to this chapter in order to listen and not to speak. We're not coming to this text in order to put God on trial or in order to question the justice of his ways or to demand that he be other than he is and to do other than he does. Rather, we come to this chapter understanding that God is in heaven and we are on the earth. The Lord is God. And we are not. Therefore, we will let our words be few. 
And this is going to be difficult for some of us because everything about this chapter stands in direct contradiction to the prevailing worldview that permeates our culture. This worldview is marked by a thoroughly man-centered self-determinism. This is the air we breathe from the moment we are born. We're told you can be anything you want to be. You decide your own future. You determine your own destiny. Even in our evangelical churches where we affirm that man is radically fallen and in need of salvation, yet there are two dictums about which we seem absolutely certain. Number one, because God is just, he must provide all people with equal access to his mercy. And number two, because God is loving, the individual must be free to accept or to reject his mercy. Now these two dictums seem so obvious and self-evident to us that few ever stop to question whether they actually are true. But there are serious flaws with both of those statements. For one thing, both of them are framed inadequately. You cannot speak of the just distribution of mercy. Justice and mercy are categorical opposites. You cannot receive both. You either receive God's justice or you receive his mercy. And mercy can never be an obligation or else it's no longer mercy. It makes no sense to say to God, you must show me mercy because must or ought belongs in the realm of justice, not mercy. Mercy is free or else it is not mercy. Furthermore, love requires more than the mere freedom of choice. For instance, is it loving for a parent to allow their child the freedom to play in a busy street? Is it unloving to drag them, even against their will, out of harm's way? You see, love is not giving someone the freedom to choose. Love is doing for that person what is best for them what will make them ultimately and everlastingly happy. But not only are both of those statements logically unsound, but Romans 9 directly contradicts each. The central affirmation of this chapter is found down in verse 18, where Paul brings his argument to a conclusion by saying, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now just think for a moment about what Paul is claiming. God's mercy is not given equally to all, but only to those whom he wills. And the final determination of who receives mercy and who doesn't receive mercy resides with God and not with man. In fact, I cannot think of a chapter of Scripture more devastating to human pride to human self-sufficiency, to human self-determination than Romans 9. Romans 9 comes at us like a wrecking ball, shattering the edifice of our man-exalting, man-glorifying, man-centered existence. And that can be a devastating experience. 
reading Romans 9 for the first time can be absolutely devastating to our innate worldview that we're just so sure is true. But we need to be devastated by the sovereignty of God. We need Romans 9. We need to silence our mouths and listen to the God of Romans 9. So that's my invitation to you today and over the next four weeks. To use the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you draw near to the house of God. Guard your steps as you draw near to the words of Romans 9. Do not be as the fool who comes to this chapter to argue and to rage against it. Rather be wise. Draw near and listen to God speak. Recognize that you don't see what God sees. You don't know what God knows. And therefore, you are not the best judge of what is right or of what is good or of what is loving. God is in the heaven and you are on the earth. So let your words be few. This morning, I want to give you a brief overview of Romans 9. I want to show you how this chapter follows necessarily from the argument that Paul presented in Romans 1 through 8 and then conclude by looking at the first five verses. In Romans 9, Paul addresses the problem of Israel's unbelief. The fact is that by and large, Israel as a nation has rejected the gospel. Israel has rejected the Messiah. Now, this reality is borne out for us in the chapters of the book of Acts. If you remember, after that initial ingathering of Jews into the church in chapters 1 through 6, the remainder of the book of Acts is largely the account of Jewish rejection, beginning in Jerusalem and culminating in the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. The stoning of Stephen then initiated a great persecution in Jerusalem and provoked the scattering of the church throughout Judea and Samaria and beyond. From that point on, as the gospel extends throughout the Gentile world, the story is the same in city after city. The Jews reject the gospel, the Gentiles receive the gospel, and the church increasingly becomes predominantly Gentile. This was the case in the first century, and it remains so today. The question is, why is that a problem? Why does Paul feel the need to justify God in this? It's a problem because God has made a promise to Israel. And this promise forms the core of the Old Testament. Let me take just a few moments and show you what I mean. When God called Abram out from among the peoples of the earth, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, out of Babylon, out of paganism, he promised that he would make of Abram a great nation, Genesis 12. He promised that his offspring would outnumber the stars, Genesis 15. He promised that he would establish with Abram and with his offspring an everlasting covenant to be their God. Genesis 17, verse 4. 
Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. 400 years later, when God brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, He brought them to Mount Sinai, and there he formed a covenant with them as a nation. A covenant that is not identical with, but is parallel to the Abrahamic covenant. With the nation of Israel gathered at the foot of the mountain, God spoke to them through Moses, saying, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Even when God foretold their disobedience and their eventual exile, yet he promised that he would bring them back and that he would change their heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. And when all these things, the curses, the blessings, when these come upon you, these curses and blessings that I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Note what he promised. He foretold that the people would break his covenant. They would rebel against him. They would not believe him. They would turn their backs on him. And in judgment, he would bring the curses of the covenant upon them and would cast them out of the land. But he says, I will not forsake you forever. I will bring you home. I will bring you back. But note this. Not without a change of heart. When I bring you back from the nations to which I have scattered you, I will circumcise your heart. I will change your heart. And then you will love me with all of your hearts and with all of your soul in order that you may live. Centuries later, when David wanted to build a house for the Lord, the Lord told David that it was the Lord who would build for David an everlasting house and an everlasting kingdom. 
2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Finally, the prophets are full of promises to Israel regarding this everlasting kingdom and their everlasting salvation. Promises that are too numerous to mention. So I picked out two of the clearest and most important, and I want to read them to you. I want you to be looking for the promise of an everlasting salvation, an everlasting kingdom, combined with the promise of a changed heart. Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them to dwell in safety. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And then in Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You get the picture? I mean, it's from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. God promised that even though they broke the covenant at Sinai, he was going to make with them an everlasting covenant, a new covenant. A covenant in which he would so change their hearts that they would now love him and obey him and walk in his ways. And he would plant them securely in the midst of his kingdom. He would dwell in their midst. They would be his people and he would be their God. These promises form the backbone of the entire Old Testament. And yet, as Paul looked around, he sees an Israel that by and large has rejected the very Messiah whom God sent to bring all of these promises to pass. Israel's unbelief has caused a theological crisis. It is that crisis which Romans 9 to 11 is designed to address. It appears as though the word that is the promise of God has failed. It looks as though God intended to establish an everlasting covenant with the children of Abraham, but they were simply too intransigent. God God was simply unable to overcome Their unbelief. He thought he could, but he couldn't. He said he would, but he didn't. God gave his last best effort in sending to them his own son, but they refused him. 
Now I hope you're beginning to see why this is such a crisis, why Paul has got to address this now. Think of how Paul has just concluded chapters 1 to 8. Think of the astounding promises of unshakable confidence and assurance and security that Paul has spoken to us in verses 31 to 39. It's been about six weeks, so let me rehearse those five promises to you. Paul gave in verses 31 to 39 of Romans chapter 8, five reasons why the people of God, the elect of God, the children of God can never be lost. Five reasons. First, since God is for us, verse 31, that is, since he is in covenant with us, none can stand against us. Two, Since God did not spare his own son, but gave him over to suffering and death for the redemption of his people, he will surely provide all things necessary to bring that redemption to completion. Third, verses 33 and 34. Since God has justified his elect, no charge shall ever be brought against them. And since Christ Jesus has been condemned in their place, they can never be condemned. Fourth, verse 34. Since Christ Jesus died, was raised, ascended, and is seated at the right hand of God and ceaselessly intercedes for his saints, they can never be lost. And five, since the love of Christ, supremely demonstrated in the cross of Christ, has infallibly secured God's redeeming love toward us, no trial, no tribulation, no enemy of any kind will succeed in separating us, cutting us off from that love, but must indeed serve the cause of love in bringing us to everlasting glory. Five unshakable promises. But... Someone may ask, was God not also in covenant with Israel? Did God not also promise the provision of his grace to Israel? Was Israel not also God's elect people? Did God not also love Israel as his firstborn son? How then can we be sure that God will keep his promises to us, the church, If Israel fell into unbelief and apostasy, if Israel sinned their way out of God's covenant, how can we be sure that we won't suffer the same fate? Paul must address this problem, this crisis of Israel's unbelief, or else his whole gospel crumbles to the ground. And so he does. Romans 9 to 11 is Paul's response to the troubling question provoked by Israel's unbelief. The question that is implied in Romans 9, 6. Has the word of God failed? And Paul's answer brings us face to face with the doctrine of God's sovereign election. Paul says in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He didn't make the covenant with all of them. But what accounts for the difference between those Israelites with whom God is in covenant, with whom he did make the promise, and those children of Abraham with whom he didn't? What is the difference between those children of Abraham with whom God made the covenant and those with whom he didn't? The answer given by Paul is God's electing grace. 
God, if you'll remember, chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. And what was the basis of this choice of Isaac and Jacob instead of Ishmael and Esau? Verse 11, it was not according to works, but according to God's purpose of election. He then brings that main point to a conclusion over in Romans 11 and verse 5. So too, then, at the present time, there is a remnant of Israel chosen by grace. And they are the ones who believe. See, the word of God has not failed because the promise was not given to all Israel, but only to the elect. This in turn raises the question, and Paul faced it, and I faced it, and you're wondering it, is that fair? Can God do such a thing? Can he choose one and not another? Paul raises that question in verse 14, and he answers it forcefully though probably not as many of you would like, in the remainder of Romans chapter 9. His answer? It's absolutely fair. It's absolutely just. Because God does it. Does that satisfy you? It's got to. We're going to wrestle through that passage in a couple of weeks. Paul justifies God's purpose of election by saying it is right and it is just and it is good and it is holy because it is the work of God who I'll remind you is in the heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Paul then concludes Romans 9 by providing some theological, soteriological balance, affirming the responsibility of Israel and everyone else to believe the gospel and to pursue the righteousness of faith. In other words, he's going to say, but don't you dare blame your unbelief on God. The remainder of Romans 9 through 11 will then continue this discussion of the gospel as it pertains to the acceptance of the Gentiles, the rejection of Israel, and then the ultimate place of Israel in God's redemptive plan. So with that foundation laid, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at verses 1 through 5, in which Paul makes two main points. First, he expresses his deep anguish over Israel's unbelief in verses 1 to 3. And second, he enumerates the immense privileges which Israel has squandered in her unbelief. Let's begin with Paul's anguish. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on the first three verses because I think Paul's pretty clear in what he means. I just want to point out four elements of Paul's anguish. First, if Paul wanted to, he could not possibly have emphasized more the sincerity of his anguish. He's not just saying this. I count at least five ways that Paul underscores the truthfulness of his claim. Look look with me. First, he affirms that he's speaking the truth. In other words, he doesn't just speak the truth. He tells them that he's speaking the truth. And then he emphasizes that he is speaking the truth by putting the word truth at the very first, in the Greek, not in the English, in the very first place in the sentence, which is the place of prominence in the Greek sentence. The first word he says to them is truth. 
I speak to you. Second, he says he's speaking the truth in Christ. That is, he's speaking the truth as one who is united to Christ, as one who speaks in the presence of Christ. And you don't want to lie in the presence of Christ. Third, he adds that he's not lying. So he not only affirms the positive, I speak the truth, he denies the negative, I'm not lying. Fourth, he brings in the testimony of his own conscience, meaning his conscience is clear with regard to his affection for and his anguish over his kinsmen. And fifth, he calls the Holy Spirit in to testify to the character of his conscience because as we all know, some people's consciences are more acute than others. In other words, Paul really, really, really wants to emphasize the sincerity of his anguish. The question is why? Well, that brings us to the second element to note, which is that Paul evidently feels the need to express his anguish and to underscore the sincerity of that anguish so emphatically because there were so many who doubted his loyalty to Israel. Paul was constantly being accused of betraying his countrymen. One commentator writes, Why has Paul stressed so strongly the truth of his concern for Israel? Almost certainly because he knew that the passionate and well-known defense of the law-free Gentile mission had earned him the reputation in Rome as elsewhere of being anti-Jewish. That's what people thought of him. Go read the end of Acts 28 when Paul finally does arrive in Rome, the very people to whom he writes this letter. The first thing he has to do is meet with the local leaders of the Jews and defend himself. Acts 28, 17, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, the charge that was leveled against him was typical of his reception everywhere he went throughout the empire. The Jews stirred up the whole crowd against him and they cried out, Acts 21, 28, men of Israel, help. This man is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and the place. Indeed, in this very letter, if you'll remember from Romans chapter 2, Paul has charged the Jewish nation with hypocrisy and he's denied that their physical circumcision and their external adherence to the law justifies them in the sight of God. I mean, is it any wonder that Paul wanted to correct this misunderstanding about his love and loyalty to Israel? Third, I want you to note that Paul is speaking hyperbolically, that is, exaggeratively, and not literally. In other words, he's using exaggerative language in order to express inexpressible emotion. No, Paul does not think that it is possible for him to actually be accursed, that is, eternally damned for the sake of or is in the place of or on behalf of unbelieving Israel. Paul knows he's not their Messiah. Besides, Christ already did that. He knows he's not in the place of Jesus. And no, Paul does not actually wish to be cut off from Christ. He doesn't want that for any reason. Rather, what he's doing is expressing the intensity of anguish that normal expressions and normal words cannot convey. When Paul thinks about his people, his brothers, his kinsmen, his nation, being in a state of cursing under God's wrath, cut off from their Messiah, it feels as if his heart's being ripped out of his chest. And fourth, 
Note that if Paul could wish himself accursed from Christ in order that Israel might not be accursed, it must mean that as it presently stands, Israel is indeed accursed and cut off from Christ because of her unbelief. I point that out because there are some teachers and preachers out there, particularly on television, who posit that the Jews stand in a different relation to God than do Gentiles because of the covenants that God made with them in the past. That's wrong. That's a dangerous distortion of biblical theology. As we will see in Romans chapter 11, Paul does hold out hope for Israel's salvation, but that hope is rooted in Christ, not in Abraham and not in Moses. If Israel is to be saved, it's going to be in the Messiah the same way and the only way that anyone, Jew or Gentile, will ever be saved. Correspondingly, if anyone, Jew or Gentile, refuses to believe on Christ as Israel has, then they too will be accursed and cut off. That's why Paul has such anguish over Israel. They're hell-bound. Well, after expressing his deep anguish over Israel's unbelief and her consequent accursed status before God, Paul then enumerates the inestimable privileges which Israel has squandered in verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. At the beginning of verse 4, Paul now finally, formally identifies the object of his anguish, the identity of his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. He says they're Israelites, which is important because up to this point, he's only called them Jews. Speaking of them as, as an ethnic group. Now he refers to them as covenant people. He speaks to them in terms of their covenant status. They are Israelites. And he, he opens up eight privileges that that status has afforded them historically. First, to them belong the adoption. Now this cannot mean adoption in the same sense in which Paul used it to refer to spirit-indwelt believers in Romans 8, because Paul has already made clear in Romans 2 and Romans 3, and he's going to make it even more explicit in Romans 9 through 11, that an unbelieving Israelite is not a child of promise, but is a child of the flesh. An Israelite who does not believe in Jesus is not a child of God. Paul's going to belabor that point. Therefore, they're neither a true child of Abraham. But there is an old covenant sense in which God adopted Israel corporately. He adopted them as a nation. And he called them, Exodus 4.22 and other places, my firstborn son. They're my son. As a people. As a corporate identity. Douglas Moo says it like this, God's adoption of Christians gives to every believer in Christ all the rights and all the privileges that are included within new covenant blessings. God's adoption of Israel, on the other hand, conveys to that nation all the rights and privileges included within the old covenant. So it's not the same as Romans 8 adoption. 
It doesn't bring with it an everlasting inheritance in the presence of God, the forgiveness of sins and justification. Nevertheless, the adoption of Israel was, and Romans 11 says, is an incredible privilege that no other nation on earth has enjoyed. In an old covenant sense, Israel, among all of the nations, knew God as Father. Second, to them belong the glory which probably refers to the visible presence of God in the midst of his people. This glory was visible in the cloud which covered Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. It led the Israelites through the wilderness throughout their journeys, Exodus 40. It's the glory that first filled the tabernacle, also in Exodus 40. And then it was the glory that filled Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 8. Finally, it was the glory that departed that same temple because of Israel's sin in the days of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10. No other nation on earth had the glory of God dwelling in their midst as a visible reminder of God's presence and promise. Third, to them belong the covenants, which probably refer to the three main covenants of promise that were given to Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. Fourth, to them belong the giving of the law. Now you remember that earlier in Romans, Paul has spoken of the law in somewhat negative terms. He's talked about its powerlessness to justify, Romans 3.19. Its propensity to increase the trespass, Romans 5.20. Its effect of awakening sin which lies dormant within the human heart, 7.9. Then bringing death to that same sinner, 7.10. But here he speaks of the law as a positive thing, as a benefit, as a blessing. Benefits that no other nation enjoyed. Through the law, Israel knew the righteousness of God. They experienced the law's ministry of revealing sin, and at least in some cases of leading to faith in the gospel. Moses told the people of Israel, Deuteronomy 4-7, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The law was a blessing. Fifth, to them belongs the worship which is a reference to the tabernacle and the temple worship, the offerings, the sacrifices, the feasts, the festivals that visibly and regularly represented the truth of the gospel to them, representing to them both the wages of their sin being death and the constant death of these sacrificial animals and God's offer of mercy through that substitutionary sacrifice. Sixth, to them belong the promises, which are the blessings of those various covenants referenced earlier. What are those promises? I like to speak of the five P's, the promise of a people, a place, prosperity, pardon for sin, and the very presence of God in their midst that belong to Israel. Seventh, to them belong the patriarchs, meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also probably that first generation coming out of Egypt as well with whom God made that covenant. Belonging to the patriarchs placed Israel in the line to receive the promises, provided they exercised faith. And eighth, from them came the Messiah by ethnic descent, but they rejected him. They had Jesus in the flesh, didn't they? 
They saw his miracles. They were there when he gave sight to the blind. They were there when he made the deaf to hear. They were there when he says to the paralytic, rise up and walk. They were there when he raises Lazarus from the dead. They saw it. They heard him teach. Never a man spoke like this man. He was speaking as one who had authority and not as their scribes and Pharisees. They had the ministry of the Messiah in their very midst. And they turned away from him. He came to his own and his own received him not. And Paul accentuates the gravity of that rejection by the way in which he describes Christ. Look at it and show it to your Jehovah's Witnesses friends. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. One of the most exalted references to Jesus to be found anywhere in Scripture. He is nothing less than the eternally blessed God, and they refused him. Yet in spite of these eight inestimable privileges, Israel remains in her unbelief. And this creates a massive theological problem that Paul's going to address next week. Has the word of God failed? Has the sin and the unbelief of Israel been simply too strong for God to overcome? Was he simply not able to conquer their sin and unbelief and bring his people to glory? And if so, what does that mean for all of the promises given to his church? As we will see, Paul is emphatic that the word of God has not failed. Rather, Israel's unbelief is part of God's sovereign purpose of election. Now, as we close this morning, I want to press home two points of application, two concluding thoughts for you to consider. I'm going to put them under the heading of what about you? I mean that with reference to both Paul and Israel. We've examined Paul's anguish over Israel's unbelief. We've examined Israel's squandering of her privileges. Now I want to turn the question around on us. First, I want you to notice that Paul, who will go on to explain Israel's unbelief in terms of God's sovereign election, still experiences anguish over Israel's rejection. In other words, Paul's response to Israel's unbelief is not, oh well, I guess they're just not chosen. Rather, he hurts for them. He longs for them. He prays for them. He bleeds for them. He gives his life for them. Paul has no difficulty whatsoever reconciling the doctrine of election with the urgency of evangelism. Do you? Do you allow the doctrine of election to dull your anguish and to numb your urgency over the unbelief of your family, your friends, your neighbors, and the nations? One of the most frequent objections I get to the doctrine of election is this. If God has already chosen those who will be saved, what's the point of evangelism? Now, I'm going to answer that question in the coming weeks because Paul's going to answer that question in the coming weeks. Today, I'm not going to answer it this morning, sorry. Today, I simply want to note to you that the doctrine of election didn't raise that question for Paul. 
He didn't struggle over it as we so often do. Therefore, I suggest to you it shouldn't have that effect upon you. Rather, I think you should keep these two truths always before you. Okay? Truth number one, you don't know who's elect. And truth number two, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me tell you how that works out. That means if you're wondering whether you're elect, you're asking the wrong question. God's not going to tell you. He doesn't say, if you would come to me, first determine whether I've chosen you. He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give them rest. He says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does that mean? If you come to Jesus and call on his name, you'll be saved. Which means, you'll be elect. It also means, as you think about that recalcitrant, obstinate neighbor or coworker or child or spouse, you have no right to write them off as reprobate. As not elect. You don't know. Paul's headed to Damascus with letters of imprisonment for the church there. Seeking to put them to death. And God converted him. Why? Because he'd chosen him from the foundations of the world. You would have never guessed that, would you? Neither did the church after he was converted. Barnabas had to vouch for him. You don't know. So, So how about we leave the hidden things to God... And the things revealed, we believe them and obey them. Second, I want you to notice that you are not so different from Israel in regard to the privileges that you enjoy, are you? Does not the church enjoy certain corporate privileges? Adoption, glory, the covenant, the law, the worship, the promises, the fathers, the Christ. Indeed, we do. And yet, how many members of churches remain unconverted? How many children raised in church reject the faith and wander off into unbelief? External membership in the covenant people is not enough. Not all who are in the church belong to the church. You must Come to Christ in personal faith and repentance. You must die to your sin and self-sufficiency and cling to Christ as your only Savior, your only Lord, and your only hope. Do not squander the immense privileges which you now enjoy through unbelief and apathy. Kids, listen to me. You have no idea what a privilege it is to be raised in church. To have known the name of Jesus and the way of salvation since the moment you could put nouns and verbs together. You have no idea what a privilege it is to be raised under the word of God. In the midst of the saints of God. Don't squander your privilege. You don't belong to Christ by being born into the church. You belong to Christ by coming to him in faith and repentance. But if you do, if you come to Christ in sincere repentance and heartfelt faith, then you may have confidence that you are a child of the promise, that you are a child of God, and that you 
are chosen according to God's purpose of election from before the foundations of the world, before you had done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose might stand. 